1: Good afternoon, Northern California. Welcome. Just about five minutes after the hour of 5 p.m. as we welcome you to another edition of Lifeline, keeping you company Monday through Friday at this time, as we typically do, addressing issues that impact your life, your world, and your Christian walk. We know that from Scripture we are made in the very image of God and that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. And so you look at these connections and wonder to yourself just how deep do they go? And by that I mean, when we talk about our relationship with God, we certainly understand it, we relate to it on the spiritual plane. But does it go deeper than that? Journalist Rob Mole joins us now. He's written a new book called What Your Body Knows About God How We Are Designed to Connect, Serve, and Thrive. He has written extensively on this topic. Um, particularly related to health and health care issues. He's also an editor-at-large with Christianity Today. You've also read his work, no doubt, in the Wall Street Journal and elsewhere. And he serves as communications officer to the president of World Vision. And, Rob, great to have you on the program.
2: Well, thank you, Craig. It's great to be here. You
1: know, it would seem at a certain level that the notion of there being a deeper connectivity with God would be a logical one, I mean, given the fact that he uh, breathes very life into us and that we are made in his image. That's right. That's
2: exactly where I was about to go, was to talk about that image in Genesis, where God forms the human being, forms Adam out of the dust of the ground and breathes into him the breath of life. So certainly we are spirit and flesh, and our faith, our spirituality, our connections to God do not are not do not just exist in a kind of ethereal plane, but they they go down to into who we are as as uh, physical beings, as uh, part of
1: God's good creation. There have been some interesting studies done, and we frequently heard this from physicians, and not those with an agenda. And I put that disclaimer in there because some eavesdropping on our conversation tonight, Rob might say, well, yeah, sure, these are Christian doctors, so they're trying to prove a point. No, physicians who who make no claim to any sort of religious affiliation whatsoever, but will say that they notice something unique and different about the patients who are praying patients, and that is that the recovery rates seem to be better survival rates following uh, significant surgeries, things of this sort seem to be better. Attitudes seem to be better. There seems to be a marked connectivity between the health of one's body and one's relationship or connectivity to God. In any of your research, have you seen that borne out in any sort of a a deeper scientific fashion?
2: Well, you know, a survey of uh, HMO executives found that 94 percent of them believe that prayer helps medical treatment and speeds recovery of patients uh something like 80 percent or higher of uh doctors say the same thing Uh, i think that these people you know and i was a i was a hospice volunteer myself and and you don't you don't get around people who are dealing with physical illnesses Who aren't also in search of um, in search of something greater, and those who have that connection uh, connection to God, who are able to um, draw on that uh, deep well of faith, they're able to they're able to often deal with those illnesses in a much more productive way, and often that means that uh, literally you can measure their immune systems, and that has an effect. They're they're able to respond to disease in healthier ways. People who go to church tend to. Tend to live longer. People who um, are engaged in spiritual practices do. One researcher at uh, Duke University found, or he estimated that the effects of not going to church, uh, the effects of the lack of spiritual, uh, lack of uh, spiritual involvement, was a- as unhealthy for people as smoking a pack of cigarettes every day for 40 years. Wow.
1: Now, we, we certainly can, can talk about connectivity. Uh, of of the body's positive reaction to positive experiences. There are experiences that helped release serotonin and we feel better. We have a sense of being uplifted, things of of this sort. Have we seen some scientific connection then in that arena in terms of um, involvement in spiritual life? I'm talking about things like prayer, like praise and worship. I mean, I would imagine if from a biblical perspective, we are designed, created in His image, and to serve and worship Him, that it would almost uh, go without saying that the body would have some kind of a mechanism that uh, that positively reacts when we're connecting with God at that level.
2: Yeah. You know, uh, one of the newest and among the most successful treatments of people with depression is prayer, simple prayer. Uh, now, that doesn't mean... Uh, Pray a few times, and, and Jesus will heal you uh, right away. But it does mean that, you know, we tend to go immediately to the, the sort of pharmaceutical uh, uh, area in order to treat these things. But uh, one of the most common prescriptions now is for people to, to turn to prayer. And it's effective, uh, and it works. And it works because prayer is literally healthy for your brain, good for your brain for you to be engaged in a spiritual pursuit, uh, gaining uh, a sense of purpose and meaning in your life. Uh, it's healthy for your brain to be contemplating God and spend some time uh, meditating over scripture, spend some time thinking of all that uh, Jesus, uh, especially at this time of year, it came to to uh, be a human being on our earth. We can consider all the things that he did, he did and when we spend some time in that sort of contemplation it's incredibly healthy for our brain
1: have scientists taken the time rob to um uh, to watch the way the brain reacts or responds to um for example a praise and worship experience i know that when i go into church and there is a, a rousing time of praise and worship. Um, it, it it uplifts your spirit. Whatever troubles that you might have carried into the church with you from the week behind you uh, seem to just sort of melt away. And and you you definitely feel as if you've made a connection with God. I would wonder if scientists have ever taken the time to be able to study the brain and see what's going on at that time when people are experiencing that that worshipful connection with God?
2: Yeah, they sure have. And uh, one study almost jokingly said uh, when people are in worship, it's as though they're uh, addicted to drugs. Uh, one of the natural brain chemicals is oxytocin, and uh, heroin actually mimics that. Uh, and so you get, a, in a sense, according to uh, the researchers, um, you get a sense of this spiritual high. You are, um, you, you're with all of these people. There's a, there's a social aspect there. Uh, you're with people that you know, people that you care about, people that you see week to week, maybe throughout the week. And that gives you a sense of uh, th- this uh, social uplift and then connecting to connecting to God in in that kind of environment it's a unique thing and and uh, one of the ways that our brains are involved is through the through the production and reception of oxytocin uh, it's a it's a normal uh, brain chemical that helps us to to sort of feel uplifted and um, and that seems to be one way that that our brains are designed to have that special feeling of connection to god you know god works in the, through physical means all all the time when he works in our lives and in that moment uh, that uh, that uh, little Boost of oxytocin is one of those
1: ways. It's interesting. During this holiday season, so often we hear reports of people getting uh, deeper in depression. They maybe have lost a loved one during this time of the year, so it's a a difficult time for them. We see higher rates of suicide amongst individuals during the holiday season. What a wonderful message of encouragement for people to understand that a relationship with Jesus Christ goes uh, well beyond not just God's concern for our our relationship to him and the afterlife but even God's concern toward how we are doing here on earth in the here and now and that the benefits of that personal one-on-one relationship with him go so deep and as so, so wonderfully connected that it can change and elevate even our mood and and uh, the way we feel about ourselves with us today is Rob Mole his book is called What Your Body Knows About God, How We Are Designed to Connect, Serve, and Thrive. We'll take a time out, come back to more of our visit as this edition of Lifeline continues.
0: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
1: Think for a moment about the feelings that you first had when you first met your spouse, for example. Uh, there there was something that happened deep inside of you. There was a connectivity that occurred. We are wired for intimacy and our bodies react to it when, it when it's right. It stands to reason, therefore, that in that same sense in which the physical part of us reacts to uh, a loved one, There is that same sense of the way in which our body reacts to intimacy with God. We are, after all, created in very God's image. I've always been fascinated by the passage early on in Jeremiah, where God speaks of having known Jeremiah while he was yet in his mother's womb. And so, with that thought in mind, we're exploring this topic today of what our body knows about God. And with us today is um, author and journalist uh, Rob Mole. And, and Rob, toward that end, I guess it stands to reason as much as we, we see that wonderful release of all those positive chemicals that go on in the brain when we're, when we're close to our, uh, our spouse, when we're intimate with our spouse, same thing is true then, I guess, of God.
2: Yeah, it sure is. I mean, when, when researchers put, uh, put someone into a, a brain scanner, it seems kind of sacrilegious to stick someone into a, a big machine and then, and then tell them to pray. But we can find out some really interesting things when, when that happens. And one of the interesting things is that the brain is working in this in this unique way. It's uh different than if you were having another kind of emotional experience. So they looked at people remembering uh, fond uh, fond memories of uh of friendship feeling perhaps even the closest sorts of friendships that they've ever had and remembering special moments. And, and then they looked at those people remembering special moments with God and what that looked like in the brain. And, and they're actually really different things. The brain's doing something different, but not something unusual or not something that the brain isn't designed to do. Uh, and one of the fascinating things is as we as we get closer to God and as we use our brain in this way to contemplate and, and meditate and pray to God, the brain is actually enhancing its uh, its senses of compassion, the sort of the brain muscles around compassion and social awareness. so, as we, as we grow in our love for God, we actually grow in our love for other people. So as you, as you mentioned, you know, as we connect with people, we're also connecting with God. As we connect with God, we're also connecting with people.
1: When you were writing this book, in the middle of this project, um, your wife went through a pretty difficult experience, um, which I, I guess made aspects of, of this book a little bit challenging. Talk to us about what was going on with your wife, uh, Clarissa.
2: Yeah. We were about 6 weeks after the birth of our child and and Clarissa started having panic attacks. I'd never seen someone with a panic attack before, but it's a, it's a frightening thing. Uh this overpowering sense of uh a sense of uh, that you're going to die, this sense of something is drastically wrong. Um I need to uh, I, I, you know, my, my, my life is unraveling. Uh, my world is unraveling, and i 'm going to die any minute. Uh, it 's uh, it's, it's actually a horrible thing to witness. And this was going on over and over and over again. And what we found as we, as we uh, sought help and, and talked to people and talked to experts was it's actually uh, not unusual for someone after, after birth to go through a postpartum anxiety or postpartum depression. Uh, so what, one of the things that was happening was that the levels of neurochemicals that she was able to use, neurochemicals like we've talked about, serotonin and, and oxytocin and things like that, were at a really, really low level, so she, she wasn't able to, to function properly. And, What I, what I, what the challenge for me as I'm writing this book and writing about the the glorious design of our bodies to be able to worship God and to and to love others, was that here, you know, in this sort of miraculous moment of of birth and welcoming new life into the world, uh, we're also dealing with uh, my wife's body that had gone so drastically wrong. Uh, and I had to, I had to find – I had to seek some answers around, well, how are we what, – what am I supposed to think about, especially if I'm going to continue writing this book, what am I supposed to think about our bodies' design when they go wrong? How am I supposed to think about God and suffering? And, and these, were, these were pretty tough questions for a while.
1: Digging into that, and I think it was important for the integrity of the book to do so, uh, what were some of the conclusions that you were able to draw for yourself?
2: Well, you know, you look at, you look at Scripture, and uh, especially at Job, and God doesn't really give Job a, a terrific answer when he, when he wants to know why he went through this suffering. Uh, God essentially answers, I'm God. <laughs> um, and, and one of the things that we see in Jesus is that uh, even Jesus suffers. Uh, and not so much that, that, uh, God gives us an answer, or, or the kind of explanation that we are seeking when we ask God about suffering, but, but we see that Jesus has suffered with us. And so as I looked in, you know in the in the physiology and biology what what is what are we supposed to how do we make sense of this one thing I found was that one of the healthiest things that we can do when we are suffering is actually to help other people uh, I talked to somebody who had gone through a similar experience panic attacks and uh, and he went to a, a Christian psychologist uh not knowing that this this woman was Christian and she said okay your your path back to hell to health is going to be to help people and she gave him a task every monday she she gave him a task of uh you know go to the soup kitchen uh, help someone across the street do these very um very mundane but very important actions of helping another person and that was actually his route back to health uh, so our bodies are designed uh, to, to be helping other people, to respond to suffering. And I think that that's, that was the answer for me, that uh, when, when humans were suffering alienation to, from God, he sent his son to die for us uh, in response. And, and when, when we are suffering and when we see others suffering— we're designed to respond and, and alleviate that help alleviate that pain.
1: We will find individuals that will, for example, during this time of year, uh, during the holidays, uh, suffer from one form or another of depression. That, in more extreme forms, can certainly lead to panic attacks, similar to what uh, your wife is experiencing on a postpartum basis. And it's fascinating to note how often, as you suggest, That just the very idea of getting the focus off of how you're feeling and your experience and focusing on somebody else whose circumstances or needs are, are, are bigger or more severe, how that can entirely change your outlook. And suddenly you realize, wait a minute, I'm here doing all of this and engaged in helping this person, and I'm no longer feeling depressed. I, I'm I'm no longer having to deal with the panic attacks and it's amazing to see the way God sort of builds into our system this ability to to do unto others that often kind times be a form of worship as well. And in doing so all of a sudden the body has a way of of healing itself, doesn't it?
2: That's right. You know, one of the one of the interesting things uh, of research recently is that, you know, mental health is, uh, you, your mental health is best when you're not really thinking about yourself. Um, when, as C.S. Lewis talks about, you can't go around uh, looking for how can I experience joy today. Uh, you experience joy when you're finding joy in the things that you do. Uh, and in the same way, mental health, um, you know, we are healthier as people, when we are engaged, when we are concerned, not for ourselves, uh, but for those around us, those who we care about, those that we are living our lives with, our family members, our friends, uh, those, those in our church communities, uh, the people at work, that's really where we find meaning and purpose, and then therefore a healthy life.
1: Rob Mole, the book called What Your Body Knows About God, How We're Designed to Connect serve, and thrive. Rob, thanks so much for the insights. The book, by the way, published by InterVarsity Press. You'll find it at Bay Area Christian Bookstores. Great holiday gift also through Amazon.com. Thanks again to uh, Rob Moll for being with us. Details, too, about his work on the web at RobMoll, mol
0: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
1: You know, when you think about your relationship with others... So much of how we view and see and relate and interconnect with others is based on the way that we view, relate, and understand God. And so much of the way we do that is based on our thought process, the way we, we mentally construct our image of God, who we perceive him to be. And to a large effect, as my guest asserts tonight, the way we view God also has a profound impact on our physical, mental, and obviously spiritual health. How do we go to about? How do we go about better understanding the relationship between the way we view God or think of God, and the way it impacts so many parts of our life? Well, he tackles this very topic inside the pages of a new book called "The God-Shaped Brain." Now, Dr. Tim Jennings is a board-certified Christian psychiatrist and master psycho pharmacologist, voted one of America's top psychiatrists by Consumer Research Council for 2008, 10, and 11. And he is on the board of Southern Pacific Association and is in private practice in Tennessee. joins us now to talk about the findings inside the pages of this new work, The God-Shaped Brain. And Dr. Jennings, a delight to have you on the program.
3: Thank you. It's a delight delight to be here.
1: Ironically, scripture says so much about this topic, and we tend to kind of just kind of gloss over it, don't we? I mean, in the in the sense that we're told about bringing our thoughts into captivity, um, we, we understand a lot about uh, the uh, the idea that we see, for example, in Philippians four eight that whatever the things that we think about. And so, if that's true in so many ways, why is it that seemingly a lot of us, maybe not all, but but many within the church, kind of had pretty significantly faulty thinking about God?
3: Yeah, and and that's a great point. I I think the point you're making is is great on several levels. One, science and brain science is actually affirming uh, things that the Bible has said for thousands of years. And that's exciting, to be able to to look at the brain science, the brain research, and say, wow, the Bible was right 2,000 years ago. Without any CAT scans or MRIs or or neurobiology, it was still right. Um, So why do people struggle with distorted ideas? Um, Well, I think it has to do a lot with... Uh, innocent and inadvertent ideas that slowly uh, encroach over time as we take our human ideas and put them back on the Bible, rather than letting the Bible reveal itself to us.
1: We hear things uh, such as uh, folks that are out there in the world of uh of motivational speakers that talk about mind over matter, things of this sort. I mean, most definitely, science has found a very strong connection between the way we think or view things and our health, hasn't it?
3: Absolutely, and everybody has probably heard of something called the placebo effect, the idea that uh, if you get a uh, sugar pill but you believe it's a pain pill, that uh, you not only get pain relief, but brain science has now shown that if you believe you're getting a pain pill, your brain will actually release uh, chemicals called endorphins and keflins, which are brain-produced opiates or painkillers. So You actually get physiological brain change if you believe you're getting a pain pill. But if you are told you're getting a sugar pill and, uh, and uh, no longer believe you're getting a pain pill, the brain does not release the endorphins and enkephalins, so you don't get the pain relief. So something as simple as that, uh, when we have a change in belief about what's happening, there's physiological consequences that are different depending on what we believe.
1: Medical science certainly understands this. I mean, uh, for example, my mother, who's been a cancer patient for almost a decade now, when she was first under treatment, by her oncologist, uh, encouraged her that very much how she viewed this particular battle with cancer, what her anticipated desire was in terms of the outcome, and her her mental viewpoint on the ability to, to get through all of this, meaning the chemotherapy, the surgery, so on and so forth, would play a major role on whether or not she was going to be able to beat this disease or not. And I'm pleased to report that in the decade, uh, her her mental viewpoint on all of this has been very good, very positive, and she's managed to um, be into full remission four times over in the last decade. So having said that, clearly, those of you in the, the medical arena have seen a connection between the impact that our thinking has on our physical well-being. Why is it that we've kind of perhaps within the church lost the understanding or maybe failed to in the first place recognize the understanding that there's also a very strong impact between our relationship with Christ or the viewpoints that we have on God based on maybe the the impressions that we had as a child and the way we think of God.
3: You know, I think something happened in uh, uh, several hundred years after Christ where the idea of God being the builder, creator who constructed his universe to operate on design parameters or protocols, laws of health, laws of gravity, these, these construction protocols that nature operates on being God's law, that instead an idea that God was like a, a Roman emperor, a dictator imposing arbitrary law, human-type law, really came into the uh, Christian thought process. And things changed, and you, you can see that history, where in the early church was very self-sacrificial, but then suddenly the church went on the Crusades, and we had the Inquisition, and we would burn people at the stakes uh, for not believing the way. So methodology changed because this construct of God's law changed from protocols upon which life was built to imposed rules you better keep or else.
1: Mm. And so with all of this, it has created, uh, to many degrees, passed down through the millennia, uh, in some camps, a distorted god construct hasn 't it that that as a result, has subsequently significantly impacted everything from our our physical well being mental well being as we mentioned a moment ago to even our spiritual health as well as relationships.
3: Absolutely. And what's uh, what's uh, striking is that m- most Christians wouldn't um, dispute this idea if they're talking about a non-Christian, uh, somebody in a Wiccan camp w- w- worshipping, you know, white witchcraft, and these days. they would say, oh yeah, that's going to be that. What's striking, though, is that within Christianity, within any, any individual church group, you can go into a group of Christians, and you can find some that worship a God of love who's benevolent and kind, as Jesus revealed them, but you can find some that are worshipping an authoritarian or punitive or distant or punishing God, and, and all within Christianity. And what we discovered is that viewpoint within the same religion actually has a different impact on how your brain functions and, and, and actually structurally changes the brain and ultimately your physical health.
1: Right. From your position as a physician... Where did you begin research into this arena to begin sort of connecting the dots, so to speak, uh, of the connection between whether or not we have a healthy or a faulty and distorted, thus, uh, God construct in our minds? And then the ultimate impact that it has on not only in in many respects, I guess, self-defeating behaviors and toxic relationships, but, but the aspects in which it touches every part of life.
3: I think it really started for me in my residency. When I started my psychiatric residency, um, I guess more than 20 years ago now, I um, was challenged by my faculty, who by and large didn't believe in God and kind of looked like historic psychiatrists often have down on those who do look on God as somehow being, do believe in God as somehow being unenlightened in some way and so they really challenged us and we had to read the theorists like Freud and Jung and Adler and and many of the the theorists who don't have a great God concept and uh, these ideas were very challenging for me and I had the premise that okay, I believe God is real if he is real then the evidence should support that we should be able to find evidences that that sustain God God's Word, and not have to simply say, well, I believe, and I'm, I'm just not going to look at any, any evidence or facts. And, uh, and so I started research 20 years ago into this to, to identify the protocols, the evidences that were there, and it's been fantastic and, and rewarding and, and validating to, to discover that the Christian viewpoint is much more um, scientific, much more evidence-based, much more reliable than a viewpoint that excludes God.
1: Have you had a chance to see this play out in the um, in the patient relationship in the sense that you've been able to notice differences in a patient's ability to respond to treatment, uh, for example, uh, take two identical, generally identical sets of of uh, symptoms and uh, patients of about the same health condition, age, weight, et cetera, et cetera find one who has a strong, positive viewpoint uh, on God and on life, and then one who does not, and then be able to play this out at all in any even remotely scientific fashion to see the end results of, of the treatment process for those patients?
3: Well, it, it, yes, and it even a little more subtle than you would suggest, believe in God or not believe in God. How about one that believes in a God of love, and who is self-sacrificial, benevolent, and one who believes in a judgmental, punishing God, and one believes God is is cares for them and wants to deliver them, and one believes God is actually doing this to them. Mm. See, that is even more striking. When people, and I have patients come see me, and I talk about a young lady in the very beginning of my book who was quite depressed and distraught because she wasn't able to have children, and she was distraught because her pastor told her it was her fault, because when she was an adolescent, she had gotten pregnant, had an abortion, and her pastor told her God was punishing her, and she would never be able to have children because of that.
1: Mm. So this viewpoint of an angry, chastising God that is punishing her for past sins or mistakes, I mean, my goodness, you can see the manner in which that could impact every level of one's relationship with Christ and ultimately the way your, your belief system works.
3: Yes, and, and, and neurobiologically when you have those beliefs, it actually fires the brain's fear circuitry called the amygdala, which causes in your body the activation of your immune system, which kicks up inflammatory factors, and this chronic activation, if this continues, actually results in uh, increasing risk of obesity, diabetes, high cholesterol, heart attacks, strokes. It reacts on the brain, increasing your risk of depression. I mean, this is very damaging to the, to the physiology to have chronic fear and anxiety going, whereas if you come back to a knowledge of god as a god of love when we fire the brain's love circuits, which is called the anterior of the cortex, they actually calm or shut down the fear circuitry. So just as the Bible teaches, perfect love casts out all fear. Neurobiologically, that's actually true.
1: Mm, I want to go deeper on this, Doctor. You've just piqued my curiosity here. We see a connection between anxiety and fear, the way the patient reacts. And we all know what that's like. I mean, you're, you're dealing with a situation maybe in your financial life or at home or at work, and you're filled with fear and anxiety, and you're on edge constantly. And the bile's just right up there, and, and, and it seems like everything that you touch and come in contact with goes wrong, and it doesn't go your way, and it doesn't feel good, and you just don't, you just have that tremendously unsettling feeling about everything. I wonder how much of that can directly be correlated to your viewpoint or understanding of very God himself. We're exploring that equation, a look at the God-shaped brain, how changing your view of God transforms your life, written by Dr. Timothy Jennings. He's with us tonight. We're going to get back to more of the conversation as Lifeline continues.
0: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
1: Dr. Timothy Jennings with us tonight. A look at the God-shaped brain. You know, it's interesting because we, we give mental assent to this around the Around the periphery. For example, um, we talk about Philippians 4 8, a passage of scripture that we are all very, very familiar with. Uh, Finally, brothers, whatever things are true and whatever things are honest and just and pure, holy, lovely, so on and so forth, if they be of good report, any virtue, if they be any praise, think on these things. Why is God telling us to do that? Why are we encouraged to to meditate? on the things of the Lord? Why are we told to bring every thought into the captivity of Jesus Christ or put on the mind of Christ? Ironically, Dr. Jennings, we talk a lot about this issue of thoughts and the way we view things mentally, and yet when it comes to playing this out in reality, we've not seen perhaps the, or at least been willing to acknowledge that strong connection between how we view God or think of God and the way that plays out in every aspect of life physically, mentally, spiritually.
3: And I think part of the reason for that is somehow these ideas is entered into much of religion and Christianity that what happens in church is about your future eternal security. It's like it's like future life insurance. And so you get things taken care of for the future need by going through the proper rituals or accepting Jesus, but it doesn't actually have impact on our life today. Rather than realizing what we've shown in the book is that God has actually constructed His universe to operate in certain ways. And living in harmony with His design for life actually, as Christ said, that we might have life and have it more abundantly now. And there actually is a real-life consequence to living in harmony with God's design or deviating from that design that we experience here and now.
1: Mm. Let's talk a bit about some of the issues related to fear. We touched on this just before the break. Um, we know that there are certain chemicals that are produced in the brain when we are subject to circumstances or situations that either uh, increase anxiety in us or create a sense of fear in us uh, that kind of uh, fight-flight a reaction. If we view God with a sense of fear and trepidation, does that also produce that that kind of chemical reaction in the brain?
3: Absolutely. And I, and this is what we've shown in in the, in the uh, from the science and from the in the book is that this chronic fear activation is actually antagonistic to love. Love and fear are inversely proportional. As Soon as Adam and Eve sinned, they ran and hit because they were afraid parade perfect love casts out all fear and so there's actually neurobiologically there's this tension that sets itself up the part of the brain where you experience and when i use the word love i'm I'm, uh, describing compassion altruistic regard self-sacrifice beneficence we're not talking erotic or romantic love we're talking that that brotherly love that one uh, loves so much they give their life for a friend that kind of love when christ said um you know, uh, greater love is no man that he lay his life down for a friend. This kind of love means I care so much for you that I'll do whatever's for your best interest, including give my life that you might live. Many parents experience this love for their children. If their children are in some danger, they would easily step into that danger to protect their child. Well, that's at war with another principle that's driven by fear since Adam's sin, that the scientists call survival of the fittest. I love myself so much I'll do whatever I have to to protect myself, including if it comes down to it kill you that i might live love you love you so much i'll give my life that you might live love myself so much i'll kill you that i might live these are antithetical love versus fear fear drives us to self-protection and exploit and hurt others Mm.
1: this process then of beginning to recognize the impact that our thinking process the way we view or react to god a lot of it of course goes back to a childhood um We often hear stories, uh, Dr. Jennings, of individuals, for example, who um, are introduced to the claims of Christ later in life. And often struggle with the imagery of God as a benevolent, loving, protective, heavenly Father who would sacrifice his only begotten son on our behalf and we, we some people will reject that just absolutely out of hand because they grew up in a household where there was perhaps an absentee father or a you know drug crazed alcoholic. Uh, driven, abusive father, and so the notion of being able to equate a loving, heavenly father who sacrifices his son on behalf of all of us that we might walk in relationship with him is antithetical to their to their manner of thinking.
3: Yes, you're exactly right, and that is a barrier for some people. Our childhood experiences certainly can put obstacles in the way, and that's, of course, why we are called to be witnesses, the hands and feet, so to speak, uh, God's uh, disciples and agents on earth, to love those individuals, and so they may not have experienced God-like love in their childhood, but they can experience God-like love in their adulthood from others who can still love them in spite of their shortcomings and anger, and ultimately lead them to see Christ in us.
1: We talk about this notion in Scripture of uh, bringing our thoughts into captivity— how can we rewire all of this? Um, you
3: know, this is a great point, and um, I put I point out in the book that the way the the brain is designed is that the, the there's a protein that is like um, uh, fertilizer for the neurons. It's called brain-derived neurotrophic factor. Brain-derived means the brain makes it. Neurotrophic factor is simply a factor that makes the neurons grow stronger. So think of it as neuro- uh, fertilizer for the neurons. When it's available, the neurocircuitry that gets it will actually sprout new connections. The brain will make new neurons that influences the proteins like this. But the, this particular protein doesn't come off of the DNA or isn't produced immediately in this form. It comes in a precursor form called pro-BDNF, and that particular um, protein is actually like weed killer for the neuron. If it binds to the neuron, it will actually uh, kill the dendrite, kill the axon, cause pruning back of the neural circuitry. And so the key issue is if there's a, if there's an enzyme available that will cleave this this weed killer into the fertilizer, then the neuron grows stronger. What determines whether you have this enzyme or not? And this is fascinating. It's the activity of the neural circuit itself if you're firing the neural circuit using it it produces this enzyme so probe bdnf the weed killers cleaved into the fertilizer and it grows stronger the circuit grows but if you're if you're dormant if you're leaving it inactive then and not using the circuit then that enzyme is not produced and the weed killer actually takes over and you start pruning the circuitry back and so imagine the situation of trying to study a language in high school maybe Spanish in high school and you're studying brute force memory and you keep practicing your firing this circuit, this new forming circuit, and this enzyme's produced, and you get more of the fertilizer, and it expands, and you keep doing it, and the circuitry grows. And then one day you graduate, and 20 years go by, and you haven't spoken the language for 20 years, and what happened to your ability and proficiency? It's been pruned back. Well, where where every thought into captivity comes now, let's say um, we have somebody in their imagination imagining certain thoughts, like we can lock a pedophile up in prison so he can't act on the behavior. But can we control the imagination? No. And if you fire those thoughts in your imagination, you're still activating the circuit. You're still producing the enzyme. You're still growing the pedophilic uh, type of thinking stronger. And so the person may come out more recidivist pedophile than they went in if they're not bringing their thoughts into captivity.
1: So a lot of this has to do with the way we control and focus our thoughts. And again, that goes back to much of the the instruction that we've received, but sadly have never put it fully into practice within Scripture. So if we have been raised with a fearful viewpoint of God... Um, and we know what the brain's reaction is to that. As much as the way we see the way the brain will react to to violence and the numbing effect oftentimes, for example, in children that spend hours on end um, viewing violent video games or or television programs, and after a while it tends to kind of anesthetize them to the the reality of what they're really facing. Then Mm -hmm. when they are exposed to real significant violence, they're almost uh, nonchalant about it because they've been anesthetized to all of this. So if, if then there has been a long process of training, so to speak, the brain to believe that God is someone to be feared, and and as a result um, has has set up this boundary uh, that prevents us from able to enter into the kind of relationship that God wants with us, or uh, the impact that it has on other relationships, as we mentioned a moment ago. How do we retrain that process?
3: Yeah, this is uh, in our book. We've introduced this idea of the. Um, integrative evidence-based approach. We have to be willing to look at evidence, and and we've identified three threads of evidence that God has provided that when we harmonize all three, we can have a more consistent idea of the truth that God is trying to reveal. And the three threads are Scripture, all Scripture is given by God for inspiration. Inspired by God is given for instruction and so forth. Science it says in Romans 1:20 that God's divine nature is seen in what He has made, so that men are without excuse. We look into nature and science and experience, taste, and see that the Lord is good. The scripture says, "Check me out. Experience me." And if you separate the three threads science without the other threads, without Scripture, is vulnerable to going into godless evolutionism. If you have experience without Scripture and science, it's vulnerable to mysticism, particularly Eastern mysticism, which is making huge inroads in America. And then, Scripture alone without the other two, I don't know if you know, but the the Christian Encyclopedia currently identifies 34,000 different Christian groups all claiming the Bible supports their view. Mm. And so without the other two anchors, we end up in confusion and disagreement and argument. And so bringing all three threads together, we can find a harmonized truth that reveals, and this is what the beauty, and this is what we've shown in the book, is that God is love, And that love, when you come back to a knowledge of God's love, it actually activates healthy brain circuits. It turns off the fear circuits. We have less anxiety, lower heart rates, lower blood pressures, lower uh, cholesterol levels. We have less risk of heart disease. We live longer. We have less risk of dementia. All these things happen when we come back to a knowledge of God. But we hold those other distorted concepts, we actually have more disease and, and we have more disability.
1: There's so much about this business of putting on the mind of Christ and bringing our thoughts into captivity and focusing on him. Now, of course, the big key, if you've been eavesdropping on this conversation, um, as Dr. Janine points out in the book, insight doesn't always equal change. You have to take a proactive approach, and I would encourage you today, if you've been struggling with a distorted God construct, um, maybe it's time to put off that old way of thinking um, and, and recognize that beliefs indeed impact uh, our physical, mental, and spiritual health and well-being. And so coming back full circle to meditate on Scripture, to bring our thoughts into captivity, and to, to imply or apply the, the, uh, the core, quite frankly, of what we're taught in Philippians 8, of what to focus on in getting back to God's Word and and reinventing, so to speak, the way we think of God and ultimately relate to Him uh, is one of the biggest keys to changing your view of God and then transforming your life. The book called The God-Shaped Brain, newly published, by the way, by InterVarsity Press, and you can get information on the web at comeandreason.com. That's comeandreason.com. And our thanks to its author, Dr. Timothy Jennings for being with us on this edition of Lifeline.